If you're a leader or an aspiring leader in the business of lifelong learning, you're in the right place. I'm Salisa Steele. And I'm Jeff Cobb. And this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Welcome to episode 232 of the Leading Learning Podcast, where we talk with Jim Fong, Chief Research Officer at the University Professional and Continuing Education Association and Founding Director of UPSIA's Center for Research and Strategy. Salisa, what do you and Jim talk about? I attended UPSIA's Marketing and Enrollment Management Seminar, MEMS for short, uh, in December 2019, and Jim delivered the closing keynote looking at a millennial-run world. So I wanted to make sure and ask him about generational differences and preferences and the impact of those differences and preferences on work and learning. Jim's also a self-professed trend watcher, so I got his take on what's on the horizon for learning. He talks about how much of higher ed still seems wed to the degree, but he doesn't think that's the future of education. He sees an increasing need to unbundle and stack and account for non-credit learning. He thinks alternative credentials now are where online learning and online degrees were 10 years ago. There were some holdouts, um, but pretty much everyone is now doing online. And he thinks in the near future, all higher ed institutions will be offering alternative credentials. And I see that as both an opportunity and a challenge for learning businesses, validation for at least some of what they're doing and that they're on the right path, but also potentially more competition from higher ed for those same learners in the future. And so what reflection questions do you have to offer for this episode? And as a reminder, listeners, you can find those reflection questions in the show notes available at leadinglearning.com slash episode 232. So Jim talks about the fourth industrial revolution. He talks about automation and the implications and impact of newer generations on learning and working and events like virus outbreaks. So the first reflection question I'll offer is, how is your learning business attuned to respond to these societal shifts? What are you doing to make sure what you offer and how you offer it best fits current needs and demand? Second, Jim talks about a creepiness index that he and his team are working on. Their work, of course, is focused on higher ed, but I definitely see application for learning businesses as well. So look at what questions you're asking your would-be learners. Are you getting creepy, i.e., are you asking for too much too soon? And what value are you giving in return to start and nurture a relationship with your prospects? Well, that second question around nurturing relationships with prospects puts me in mind of the value ramp, and that's a tool of ours that can help organizations think through the relative value of their offerings and make sure that there are some available for free. And we usually stress free in terms of money, but Jim's comments make it clear that it's also important to offer some things that are free or close to it in return for information you're asking for. Not everything should be behind a sign-up form. And we'll be sure to include a link to the value ramp in the show notes. For now, on to the conversation with Jim Fong. Welcome to the Leading Learning Podcast. I'm Salisa Steele, and today I'm joined by Jim Fong. Jim is the Chief Research Officer at the University Professional and Continuing Education Association, 
and founding director of UPSIA's Center for Research and Strategy. Jim, welcome to the Leading Learning Podcast. Thank you, Salisa. It's a pleasure being here. So I would like to give you a chance here at the outset to uh, highlight for listeners a little bit more about yourself and your work so that they can have that in mind as, as backdrop for our conversation. Well, that's great. Um, as you mentioned, I'm the Chief Research Officer at the University Professional Continuing Education Association, otherwise known as UPSEA or UPCEA. And what I do for the association and its 400 members and its uh, corporate partners along the way is I'm responsible for for a lot of the trend research, a lot of the member research, and, and some level of custom research for for members um, that, that require uh, additional services. So as the market evolves around, around business and uh, around learning and, and the business of learning and, and educational trends here, I get more involved there as well as with demographics and, and new marketing technologies and all other things like that. My role is here is to help our members uh, be ready for the future and be sustainable uh, from the, for the most uh, extent, you know, to also be profitable and also to serve their missions uh, in higher education. Well, great. And so, you know, as you talked about there, you know, uh, a big area of focus for you is is marketing and it is research. And so I would just love to know kind of what what drew you to this line of work and, and maybe also what do you see as the importance of research and marketing, particularly in this context of, of lifelong learning? Well, I've always been involved with marketing. <clears throat> yeah, early in my career, uh, I was a, I was very heavily into the analytics. Uh, you know, I wanted to be a sports statistician, uh, and 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 in back in the late '80s, early '90s, that's what I wanted to do. But I found myself being very intrigued with society's kind of lack of analytics and decision making. <clears throat> How could a a baseball player, you know, hit 400 home runs and bat 100, uh, 180, you know, get millions and millions of dollars? And I, and I was I was kind of sho- shocked at that. But then I but then I looked at society was doing the same thing, and so. Uh, I really focused in on the analytics side of things, but then I, I got kind of into the people watching and consumer behavior, and I felt like that was the underpinning of marketing and strategy development was looking at how people how you how do you measure things. And then I got then I joined uh, Penn State University. Oh, about twelve actually back in the late nineties. I left about about uh, eleven or twelve years ago, but there during that process, I looked at internal processes in in marketing, especially about how marketing was really back in the late 90s, early 2000s, it was really a beauty contest, whoever had the best creative one. And I really felt like you know, it was all about enrollments. <clears throat> it was all about you know, return on investment. It was all about growing market share. And, and so I really took a passion in terms of, of, of working within higher education and at, at the time Penn State. I was involved with UPSIA, but as a, as a member at that point, and I always felt like you know, the, the association needs more, the, the community needs more. And so later on in life, after I got a master's degree in analytics and statistics, I got an MBA and you know, I worked with some consulting companies and I kind of pulled it all together and, and, just, and said to myself, education is the place where I want to make an impact. If you want to make an impact with your education, professional development, or other learning products, our sponsor for this quarter can help. WebCourseWorks is a leading learning technologies and consulting company that is forging a path of innovation in the e-learning industry. The company's experiences and expertise guide its partners to become the leading providers of education in their fields. WebCourseWorks channels organization learning efforts to deliver on the promise of revolutionary performance improvement. 
CourseStage, the learning management system from WebCourseWorks, is built for organizations and professional development initiatives. It enables organizations to customize learning experiences, track user success, and make data-driven decisions. CourseStage LMS is designed specifically to handle continuing education and professional development activities for organizations who want to grow their learning business. Access a demonstration of the Course Stage LMS as well as other valuable webinars from WebCourseWorks at leadinglearning.com slash WCW. You can also download the WebCourseWorks 2020 eLearning Hype Curve predictions by going to leadinglearning.com slash hype. And now, back to the interview as Salisa asks Jim for his take on the practical value of learning businesses looking at generational differences. I know that one of the areas that you've given a lot of thought and, and focused on is around the um, the impact of different generations on the workplace and, and really the world in general. And so I would be curious to get you to share some of your thoughts around um, the practical value of looking at generational differences for organizations that are focused on lifelong learning and continuing education and, and professional development. Well, yes, absolutely. And I think it's actually more than that. I think it's a, uh, a convergence of a lot of things that are happening right now. What we're seeing here is we're seeing education um, going one direction. And, you know, most, mo- most of the players in education are, uh, are clinging, on, clinging onto, the, onto degrees. Our economy is really moving toward what, what's been called the fourth industrial revolution here. A lot of high tech, a lot of automation, a lot of AI, a lot of kind of da- data-driven decision-making. Um, and, and along the way, we're having this, this generational uprising, which is happening. And in the U.S., we're having a, a presidential election year. I think all of these things are a perfect storm in terms of what education will look like in the, in, in the future. I think if a lot, of things were, a lot of these things were happening, you know, separately or, or, or independently, um, 2020 wouldn't be such a, uh, you know, a, a big year for higher education. But it is because what's actually happening here is that we have millennials that are that are now kind of 24 to 38 years old. They're the biggest cohort in the work, workplace, yet now they're just starting to, to catch uh, uh, kind of their power in terms of the economy. And then we've got a, a controversial kind of political system where their voice is actually being heard a little bit more. On the other hand, you know, there's a lot of debate on this, but the, the boomer uh, generation is starting to retire at a faster rate than it was over the last five years. And, and that's actually kind of d- diffusing power into the other generations. And then we've got this totally different generation, this Gen Z uh, generation, which is roughly about 14 years old to about 23 years old. And they're a smaller cohort. They have a lot of similarities with, with millennials, but they're different. And so I think that these, these phenomena, given the economy, given automation, are, are really going to change this whole industry of higher education. And that's where that, and coupled with, with marketing technologies, and, and there's a lot of shifting from, obviously, traditional uh, broadcast media to digital media, but even getting deeper into the psyche of the, uh, of the Generation Z learner and the, and the young millennial, I think is going to be pretty fabulous in the, next, in the upcoming years. Well, so I know that you mentioned uh, automation a little bit in there, um, and I'm just curious about some of the the other kind of like pr- practical um, implications of this sort of you know tipping point that might be happening as as the millennials um, come into to more of their power, maybe uh, assume more managerial roles or come into the higher leadership. Um, I don't know if it's around automation or around other things, but you know what do you 
begin to see as, as some of the, the implications of this generational shift? Well, what's actually happening, and you know, I know that uh, it, it's a it's a timing issue right now, but we've got you know we've we've got a virus going around right now, and we've got people that are very concerned about it. And so, what's actually happening here is that we've got uh, people you know working at a distance, and we've got the service economy and other other technologies really kind of rising up in in terms of being a new uh, kind of foundation for the future. We, we also have going on here is we had this shift in this very um, fast shift toward automation and in a lot of companies that are that are pouring a lot of r d into us are, are are fueling it behind this this younger generation workforce and then we've got a boomer generation which is not necessarily comfortable with this this with this type of technology here and so they're almost giving away to it uh, in, in a certain degree and so what's actually happening is we've got a lot of upheaval but we've got new workers in the workforce that are that are generally comfortable with technology. So I think they're going to be the natural fit um, in terms of the, in terms of the new developments. And I think in terms of, you know, being the fuel behind a a lot of new developments there. Mm -hmm. Well, that's very uh, interesting, right? To see sort of how uh, something like a virus might be sort of a further exacerbating trends that are already there and sort of pushing us maybe a little bit faster um, towards uh, adoption of, of, technology or have a have more heavy reliance on some of these technologies um, that are already out there, but again, suddenly become much more important because of particular uh, situations that arise. Now, I know that one of the things that I saw recently was that you and your team had come up with a, a creepiness index, uh, and I know this sort of ties into the generational differences because I know that you referenced Gen Z in in that, but maybe let's just start first by having you explain to listeners what is the creepiness index. Well, actually, I, I'm uh, I'm impressed that you saw that because we were starting to release that out into our community. But what we have, what we've been doing for the last three years, is I've had Gen Zers working for me, and, and so I can better understand them and understand the, their behavior. I've also helped them. Actually, I've also asked them to help me with with this uh, report. Uh, called called the Insider's Guide to Gen Z, and along the way, you know, as they're working with me, they're telling me that higher education has got it all wrong, and so they would go onto forums and fill out things and ask for things, and and they get some very very displeasing results. And so we started running, uh, we started looking at our own membership and looking how they how they request uh, uh, information, and, and this new this this generation uh, of young people. Um, it's, it's just the systems that higher education put in place uh, don't mesh with them. And, and, and they're very creeped out by it. And so uh, I had a, a bunch of uh, actually a few Gen Zers put this scale to, with me. And we're still kind of working out some of the, the measurements of it. But what, we, what, the, what we've asked them and we've actually asked our community is that what kind of questions do you think uh, young adults, uh, new, new adult learners you know, want or are, are willing to give. And so uh, Gen Zers, when you ask them and you look at all the research behind abandoned shopping carts, they actually want, will give you their, their first name and their email address. And they might give you their, their last name and, uh, and then, they want, they, then they want something back in return. They may actually also answer another question like, okay, uh, how did you hear about us? Or what are you interested in? But then they, higher education will ask many other questions they will ask, you know, we have one, we have one institution that asks 27 questions of the adult learner. And we just think that's very lazy. You could actually do that 20 years ago when you had the power 
in terms of higher education where you have the product and <clears throat> people wanted it. You can make them do stuff if they really wanted it. You don't have that. Higher education doesn't have that power anymore. So they need to develop the relationship. Otherwise, it gets creepy. And the research that, we're, that we, we've been doing here has been, okay, once you get past three or four questions, it starts getting creepy when a higher education institute, uh, institution asks you about uh, what is your, uh, who's your employer? Or uh, they also ask you, you know, you know, where did you finish in terms of your class? Or, you know, have you taken certain certifications? And what's your work address? And all these things start developing a mode of creepiness. And so we're, we've actually measured the, what people are doing from a baseline perspective, an acceptable perspective, and a creepy perspective. And we're finding a lot of folks asking really creepy, unnecessary questions because, one, they don't realize they don't have the power, or two, they're, they're unwilling to, to uh, build the relationship over two or three touch points. Mm. I think that's a, a really interesting point, this idea of, of uh, kind of needing to earn the, uh, the information that you're asking for from a, a potential learner. And I, I know that, that you're working in this context of higher ed, and that's where this, this creepiness index is, is coming out of. But, I mean, maybe talk about what you see as some of the implications of this creepiness index, um, you know, kind of how might uh, an organization that's offering learning um, make use of it or be better aware of, you know, where they might be um, sort of shading into creepiness? Well, I think the, the, the fundamental for me is that, <clears throat> is that uh, organizations, higher ed or not, they need to know their customers. They need to understand who their customer is today and who will they be in the future <clears throat> and what others are doing uh, to to convert on on them, the enrollment funnel is not any different uh, from from outside of higher education as it is within higher ed- education. It just what are those touch points in between, and how do you actually cultivate nurture nurture a relationship along the way, and how do you use technology at the right places? How do you use people at the right places? How do you how do you use analytics throughout the whole process? <clears throat> how do you get organizational change uh, along the way? How do you inform your you know, your decision makers, your senior people, your whole organization about, uh, about who this customer is and how they're converting in and what their needs are and what, their inf- what the information exchange is. And that whole trust factor uh, <clears throat> really depends on knowing your customer and knowing what, what their values are. And I think that's higher education is a step or two behind a number of other industries, but there's a lot of other industries that are, that are really lagging. They're, they're thinking that they're their consumer is still, or their customer is still a, a Gen Xer or a boomer, when in reality, they're a very, very savvy uh, Gen Zer or, or young millennial. And so if I'm understanding correctly, I mean, part of what you're talking about is that that idea that, you know, kind of comes from other areas of marketing, that abandoned shopping cart. I mean, in essence, there are the, the sort of newer generations is they're less willing to put up with those intrusive questions. And they're going to sort of reach that point where like, they're going to end that relationship if it's not being nurtured. Is that correct? Oh, absolutely. And they, they've grown up that way. They've, they've done the whole crowdsourcing thing. They've done the whole, uh, you know, Tinder, you know, Uber thing. And it, it, the moment that they're not comfortable and this generation is, is a little bit more sensitive, a little bit more fragile in terms of, in terms of their psyche and stuff. And in fact, they, you know, there, there's a lot of debate about their dependence on friends and their social networks and their family. So the moment they're uncomfortable, they go to these networks and they, they're saying, hey, you know, University X is asking me some weird questions here. Is that typical? 
or company B has asked me for credit card information. It sounds too early for it. Once they start to distrust you, and their brand loyalties are very, very uh, different from, they're even very different from millennials, uh, but uh, they're, they're more sensitive and they're more thoughtful and they actually process information better than other generations. And so while they're pulling all this information in, in the moment you, you, you create this unease or this creepiness, uh, it's really hard to get that back. And, and that's why, you know, there are certain companies that do very well, you know, in terms of retaining their customers, especially these, these Generation Zers. And I'll just kind of make mention of one company, Chipotle. Chipotle's had a number of disasters out there regarding, uh, regarding health and regarding YouTube videos and whatever. But they understand their customers and they're able to get that loyalty back. Uh, you know, unless you have that type of relationship or you have those countermeasures in place, will, you know, you as a university or another uh, organization be able to retain these customers or if you lose customers how do you acquire them back having a knowledge of of gen zers uh, young millennials or any generation in this new economy in this new way of learning in this digital environment is is ultimately critical in terms of success and you know maintaining market share profitability and return on investment mm. well i know that you're a uh a trend watcher, um, and and so I'd love to get your perspective on kind of, you know, what the the future holds. And I'm thinking relatively near term, you know, maybe five years out or so. And so when you're thinking kind of big picture about what's on the horizon for learning, um, what do you think is going to have the biggest impact on what or how we learn? Well, I, you know, as I was mentioning about these Gen Zers and millennials here. You know, regardless of where you stay politically, uh, stand politically here, I think they're going to find their voice. Uh, you know, I think if, they're, if their candidate wins, <clears throat> they're going to say, hey, we did this and, you know, and, and we're going to do it again with something else. If, they did, if their candidate doesn't win, they're going to say, OK, we're going to protest. We're going to we're going to have our, our voice uh, heard here. So I think this, these new generations are going to reshape a lot of different things out here. I think, uh, you know, one of the things that we need to look at with education here is education has been bound very, very tightly under a nice little package called a degree. <clears throat> the degree was created, you know, 50 to 100 years ago, actually even longer than that. But in, in the U.S., it really kind of took off post-World War II. Uh, it also even took off before that with the, the land-grant acts, uh, you know, the Moral Land-Grant Acts. But uh, it's, it's been packaged for, this, for the second uh, generation here, one that was heavily manufacturing-based. And then it actually evolved into the third generation, the internet service sector, <clears throat> The fourth generation, I don't think it's, it's, it's actually built very well for that. I think what's going to happen is this degree has got to unbundle itself. And this next generation here of learners, they're used to being on Khan Academy. They're used to learning via YouTube. They're going to unbundle this, this, this nicely packaged degree package into smaller chunks. And we're seeing that right now. We're seeing badges happening. We're seeing people getting certificates. The things are starting to stack now. And now with the economy the way it is, and even society the way it is, you know, and, and once that power shifts a little bit more to the millennials and Gen Zers, this stackable learning credential <clears throat> will mean more. And uh, just because you've taken, you know, something on a non-credit basis, it doesn't mean it, it shouldn't transfer into the same type of learning on a, on a degree. And I, I think we'll see, we'll see more and more of that as as the data analytics and the predictive analytics and the assessment pieces get stronger as well, that they can say, okay, somebody that's learned how to communicate with, with, you know, multi-generational audiences in a credit mode and a non-credit mode, they know the same thing. So therefore 
this 20 hours of learning that they got on a non-credit basis should be worth half a credit or something like that. Or they've earned all these badges, you know, in terms of retaining the workforce and communicating and managing conflict. That should be worth, you know, X amount of credits toward that uh, human resource degree. I think the unbundling of education is just starting to happen right now. And that's where UPCA has really shifted a lot of its a lot of its emphasis. <clears throat> it, you know, although recent events will refuel the online learning environment around credit, uh, it'll also fuel the online learning environment around non-credit. And so we're gonna see a lot of new innovations, new ways of learning, and new accepted ways of learning. You know, the no longer can the faculty at a university say, well, we only do credit. That's the only way. That's the only quality way to learn. This economy, this state of state of our world right now, coupled with all these factors all coming together at once, will really push towards new learning and, and, and acknowledgement that somebody with a lot of experience and that has learned on on his or her own, uh, you know, is actually capable of you know running a workforce or running a major system, uh, and, and is very successful in this economy. I think that's what we're going to learn. That's what we're going to see uh, moving into the future. So I'm hearing in that uh, kind of an emphasis on on alternative credentials. You know what what's out there besides the degree and this unbundling that you were talking about, and then also to an emphasis on on um, on competency, right? The sort of whether it was a four degree or a, a non degree experience, if the individual actually acquired skills or knowledge that are, are needed to to perform, then it doesn't really matter as long as that individual can perform. Yes. And I think the other piece will, will be, uh, you know, we have, you know, between three and 4,000 institutions of higher education in the U.S. And um, a lot of them are on shaky ground financially. <clears throat> and the, the, the unfavorable demographics are pushing for new ways of learning, new ways of revenue, new ways of engaging, engaging the population. So uh, they've got to monetize them some way. And so I think universities, colleges and universities will, you know, this unbundling, you know, although it's not as profitable uh, per unit as, as a degree or credit is, it's, it's the reality of it is that they're going to have to find new streams of revenue. And so the business, the business of running a, a institution of higher education uh, is becoming more of a reality. And the, and the new industry, the new economy is, is driving for that. Otherwise, new solutions will be will be created, you know, at, at a corporate level. And they already are. You know, we've got, you know, we've got Google, we, you know, we've got Amazon, they're all, they're all training their own workforce. Yes, they're engaging higher education for, for things, but they're, they've become less dependent on them over the last, you know, five and 10 years. So I think that if higher education, uh, they're starting to see the signals and they're definitely seeing them, uh, the, the financial signals that they're pushing for this model. And a lot of our new research uh, is showing that it's not only supplementing the education, but it's also reskilling the workforce. Uh, institutions that, that graduated people in certain degree areas have got to, are, are acknowledging the fact that they've got to supplement their education in, in, for this new economy. Uh, there's also been a lot of research that, that we've been doing and folks like Strata have been doing uh, around the value of the liberal arts curriculum and how that's got to be uh, almost competency-based and certificate and badge-based while they're actually in college and also you know, post-college. There's a lot of things that can be enhanced, highlighted, and, and reskilled in terms of this new workforce, but this, this degree model uh, is not the right model uh, necessarily for the entire fourth industrial revolution here. It's, it's important for the STEM fields, uh, 
you know, but but these other uh, sectors that are evolving and the rescaling and things that are happening in healthcare aren't necessarily fully, you know, degree based. And so I think that's where we need to see a lot more innovation and willingness to change by higher education. Mm-hmm. So uh, other options uh, available in that portfolio beyond degrees, which, as you were saying, may still have their value and relevance in certain places, but then these are uh, other ways to be able to um, help other fields and, and folks continue to upskill, reskill, and remain relevant. Yeah, and I think that's really important here. I think the what you've really got to do here, I mean, higher education is, is an underpinning, obviously, of uh, of a job advancement and, and, and job security and other things like that, and being able to move between industries here. <clears throat> and whether or not it's a higher education institution or somebody else building that, you know, the you know the long and short of it here is that the economy needs that. And so, in a perfect world here, you, what you what you really want here is you want people to be learning on their own. <clears throat> you want people to be learning from experts. You want people to be learning from their company and their work experiences. And then you want people to be learning from higher education, which is, you know, which is part of the, all those equations here. And all these things should be stackable and acknowledged uh, in some, some form and some kind of credential. And these credentials should, in a perfect world, should feed into one another. A, you know, a, a competency in, in a certain area, uh, I should be able to be tested on that and I should be able to get a badge from that. That badge hopefully could work toward a certificate. Many certificates should hopefully work toward, you know, maybe an, an associate's degree or, or a post-baccalaureate certificate or something, something bigger than that, that which ultimately could figure into a, a bigger degree, which ultimately could figure into, you know, who knows, a graduate degree or, or a doctorate, who knows, but or, or at least evolve into, uh, toward a, you know, advancements in, in the job or, or advancements in salary or, or, or just um, ways of contributing to society where you know the metrics may not be necessarily monetarily, but uh, all these things kind of tie together, and I think that's where higher education you know needs to think beyond uh, just that whole degree model, and it needs to kind of drive down toward the badging and certificate level. They're already involved with certificates. A lot of institutions are, and our, our new research shows that seventy percent of our members are currently providing some form of alternative credentialing, and another twenty six percent plan on doing it. And so that foundation is being built. It's just how much how much can they uh, reach in terms of in terms of demand? I mean, there's they need to generate a, a supply out there for the marketplace, but hopefully it'll coordinate with demand. Otherwise, business and industry will develop their own uh, sources of training and education. Mm, well, that's fascinating. Seventy percent already doing it, and twenty six percent planning that's that's practically you know uh, everyone uh, in the near future then it sounds like we'll be involved in alternative credentials yeah and I think that's the way that's what we saw 10 years ago with online uh, there was a resistant few and but there was a lot of folks that were jumping in online and then uh, then a second tier a second wave came in to develop a, to to jump in the whole online degree market here and those that didn't uh, do the online thing uh, either you know, are not in business, or they've strengthened up other areas of their core businesses as well, or their core uh, competencies within their institutions. And so I think that same thing is happening here. So, you know, five, 10 years out, I think we'll be more dependent on these non-credit forms of education. Mm. Well, fascinating. And and so we'll begin to kind of wind down. And I want to ask you as the next to last question, one that we ask all of the, the guests on the Leading Learning Podcast, and it gets at some of your own personal learning. And the question is, what's 
been one of your most powerful learning experiences that you've been involved in as an adult since finishing your formal education? Well, you know, I've never really stopped learning here. It's just what I chose to to to, to learn. Um, you know, I I've been my wife has told me many times you should go for your doctorate in higher education because you could finish this thing so so quickly. You know, and I've I've kind of you know banked a lot on 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 a few master's degrees, but then I've you know I'm always am, am pulling up you know different podcasts, different videos, and you know I I, I go to as many conferences as I can uh, just to keep on learning about. Uh, just about what's what's on the next kind of horizon in terms of the next trend and, and whatsoever. So I, I try to immerse myself as well. I surround myself with with uh, Generation Z and millennials. I was very critical of millennials five or six years ago. I picked on millennials just like the boomers were picking on them now. Uh, I, I felt like you know this was an entitled generation. Was this generation too connected you know with their technology? Uh, the more I immerse myself <clears throat> and understand them understood them, I realized that their skill sets and their strength was was incredible. And I feel the same way with Generation Z. I think you immerse yourself in terms of what you want to learn and you keep an open mind and you're and you're you listen to people and uh, and you not get stubborn. And I think that's where really what opens up new modalities of learning in your brain in, in terms of what you can accomplish and and whatsoever. Because I just think that uh, just having the greater appreciation of what you don't know and, and trying to figure that out. I've always been kind of a puzzle guy in trying to figure out a problem here. And that, that I think, has been my, my most valuable experience over the last five years is, is listening to millennials and not, and not believing in the fact that they're – not believing in terms of the urban legend that they're self-entitled or whatsoever. They're just different. And, in fact, they're, in charge, they're going to be in charge of the economy right around the corner. And so I think coming down to that uh, realism and then the realism that – Boy, this Gen Z is just an amazing generation, and uh, you know, yes, they like to take their selfies and they like their experience here. But boy, they they just process information at a lightning speed. They use apps to make their life so much better. They're powerful from a communications and a and a, net, and a uh, their own personal networks. That you've got to open yourself up and you've got to learn these things and appreciate them. And I think that's been my biggest learning of the last you know five years. I love that I hear in there both the aspects of, of social learning that you're you're putting yourself in situations with these millennials with Gen Zers so that you are learning from them. There's also just that uh, underlying curiosity um, and interest in in how things tick, uh, how how the puzzle works, and how you can solve it. So thanks for sharing that, Jim. And then as a final question, just if listeners want to learn more about you or your work or connect with you, where would you have them go? Well, I can uh, easily be reached uh, through my UPCA network there, uh, jfong at upca.edu. Uh, and I also have a blog off, off there. And then my LinkedIn profile, I've, I've been putting a few things out there as well. And so I, I like to keep, kind of keep it in those types of environments here. Um, not really much into this, to the self-promoting of, of Jim Fong here. And I want to really focus in on advancing higher education progress. Well, wonderful. We'll make sure to include in the show notes uh, uh, access to the the blog uh, on UPSIA site, and, and so that folks can get to it that way, and uh, also your your profile on LinkedIn. So, thank you very much, Jim, for making time for this conversation. Thank you for having me. It's, it's been a real pleasure. That concludes the interview with Jim Fong. To get show notes, go to leadinglearning.com/episode two thirty two, and the show notes will include the reflection questions. First. 
How is your learning business attuned to societal shifts? What are you doing to make sure what you offer and how you offer it best fits current needs and demand? Second, look at the questions you ask would-be learners. Are they creepy? I.e., are you asking for too much too soon? And what value are you giving in return to start and nurture a relationship with your prospects? When you check out the show notes, you're going to see various options for subscribing to the podcast. And if you're getting value out of what you hear and you're not already subscribed, Jeff and I would be truly grateful if you would, because that helps us get some data on the impact of what we're doing. And we'd also be grateful if you take just a minute to give us a rating on Apple Podcast. Just go to leadinglearning.com slash Apple. Salisa and I personally appreciate your rating and review, but more importantly, those reviews and ratings help the podcast show up when people search for content on leading a learning business. And we'd be grateful if you would check out our sponsor for this quarter. You can access a demonstration of the Course Stage LMS and other valuable webinars from WebCourseWorks at leadinglearning.com slash WCW. And you can grab their 2020 e-learning hype curve predictions at leadinglearning.com slash hype. Finally, please consider following us and sharing the good word about leading learning. You can find us on Twitter by going to leadinglearning.com slash Twitter, on Facebook at leadinglearning.com slash Facebook, and on LinkedIn at leadinglearning.com slash LinkedIn. We also encourage you to use the hashtag leading learning on each of those channels. Wherever and however you do it, please do follow us and help spread the word about leading learning. Thanks again, and see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast.